Uh, if you're visiting here, you may not understand what all this talk about. Uh, pastor Jeff is our lead pastor, our senior pastor, even though he's a little younger than me, he's senior pastor, uh, has been on sabbatical uh, since, uh, well, for three months. And uh, he's scheduled to walk back in the office uh, sometime in the next week. Uh, I, don't, I don't know, really. Uh, it's, it's about 46 hours and 10 minutes from now. I'm not really keeping up with it. Uh, I, some of the engineers are going, you wouldn't believe the things I get corrected on after uh, I miss Jeff and Margaret and uh, they're great friends of mine. They were uh, before any of us ever moved to the great Commonwealth uh, of Virginia. I, I had a young boy over here, one of the Hartzell boys came up right before the service and asked me, are we still going to do that thing next Sunday? And I had no idea what he was talking about. And I, a couple of months ago, I thought, how great would it be if we could get everybody but about eight people to hide in the fellowship hall next Sunday? <laughs> and when, when Jeff comes up to think that's what's happened in the last three months is that we... <laughs> it's been three months I'll never forget. Uh, God has shown his... His grace and His mercy and His love, I'm telling you, in, in ways that, that has been genuinely amazing. Only He could do. He's blessed our elders. He's blessed our people. He's blessed my, my family uh, and me. And, and uh, it's, been, it's been so great. But this is today is the last in a 13-week series on the book of James. I would ask you to open your Bible, if you would, to James chapter 5, or it's on page 1013 in your uh, pew Bible, or you can look behind me uh, and follow along as we read his word. It's chapter 5, uh, beginning with verse 12. This is God's holy word. This is eternally true, and it's for you, and it's for me, and it's from the Lord, beginning with verse 12. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. I started at the wrong verse. I'm sorry. I've got it covered up with a sticky. <laughs> Beginning with verse 12. Sorry. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, 
Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you for the written word. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds and our ears to hear your word and to understand it and to be changed by it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. At this point, usually uh, I have uh, an introduction that I've sort of memorized and I give you an introduction to the sermon. Today, I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to read the meditation because I know probably only about a third of you or half of you maybe read the meditation that's in your bulletin just inside the front cover. You just read along silently or you don't even have to look at your bulletin. Just listen to this. An uneducated but hardworking young woman had shared with her four children the last can of food in the house. This strong believer had lost her job but had kept the faith through many months of the Great Depression. Now she had only her breast milk and with no prospects of any nourishment, this too would be lost. One of her daughters suggested they go on a walk and sing to Jesus. They put the baby in the stroller and did just that. Between songs of praise, the woman cried out to God for food. Her two oldest ran ahead to gleefully burst through a little mini tornado of leaves. One of them picked up something. It was a $20 bill, enough money to feed them for four months. Four months, sorry. God answers prayers for his glory and our good. The primary, uh, this message, this passage is largely about prayer. But the way we're going to focus first this morning on verse 12 and how it's telling us to, to weigh our words. Many commentators, so many different books are in agreement that there's scant evidence as to why James inserted verse 12 in in between these two passages. One we talked about last week was patience in suffering. And then this last one is all about prayer. And then it it seems it's just right in the middle uh, of these two seemingly unrelated topics. And it's also a little bit theologically confusing, uh, not just to people like me, but to uh, scholars and academicians of why he would preface it with, but above all. After, after hearing all these different instructions and knowing the gospel as James did, for him to say, but above all, it's kind of, uh, it, it's kind of an odd way for him to do it. And we know that it it's, seems to be a little bit out of place, but really all through the letter, James has been talking about the power of words. Every single chapter, it seems like the thread that runs through the entire letter. And he's trying to help them know how to practice their faith in just everyday practical ways uh, in their lives. He he knows he's about to stop writing and he probably is wanting to reiterate this most important theme that he said so many times about guarding our tongues, about guarding the words that come from our mouths because 
Words are so powerful. Human words can be so encouraging, so damning, so discouraging. And God's words are infinitely powerful. He spoke the worlds into existence. And we use our words. It tells us in Romans 10, 9 that if we confess with our mouths, if we confess words that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. So James knows that this emphasizing the power of words uh, is so important. In chapter 1, he writes, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Verse 26, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. And then in chapter 2, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. And he also warns against words of blessing to well-to-do people and words of scorn or neglect to the less important, to poor people. And then he goes on in James 2, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And he goes on to say, this should not be this way, brothers. They, they, we, they shouldn't do that. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. Then in chapter 4, he says, don't speak evil against one another, brothers. And then just after this admonition, he rebukes them for speaking carelessly about what they're about to go accomplish. They arrogantly say, we're going to go into the, this city and we're going to do this business and we're going to make a profit. And then we're going to do that, this and that. And he's saying that uh, they are not masters of their own destiny. They are not masters of their own lives, but God in heaven is their master. So the context is, explains why he, he kept going with this, with James 5, 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So regarding this phrase, but above all else, he's not saying pay attention, special attention to this above all the other instruction that I've given you. But he's saying above all else because God's glory is above all else. And he knew that the Jews knew that he, to whom he was writing exactly what he was talking about when he said that because they took oaths. Uh, swearing by God's name for, for centuries. But centuries earlier in the Ten Commandments, God said, don't take his name in vain. But the Jews uh, came up with a little plan in, in sort of typical uh, Pharisee fashion. They slightly changed the way they took oaths by swearing on heaven or earth or on some other thing. So they were trying to sort of get away with still, still swearing by God, but without saying his name because it was very important that they not say his name. It was a very sneaky thing to do. One commentator wrote this, 
To remain guiltless, the Jews had made a distinction between binding and non-binding oaths. Instead of using the divine name, which would be binding, they swore by heaven or by earth or by anything else. In their opinion, that would be non-binding and would not incur the wrath of God. Both Jesus and James denounced this practice. The intention of appealing to God remains the same, even though one pretends to not use God's name. And as Kurt mentioned earlier, James was the biological son of the once Virgin Mary. So he's the half-brother of Jesus. Jesus and James grew up in the same house, almost certainly slept in the same bedroom. So they knew each other very well. And James knew that his brother Jesus, who he had figured out by now as the Messiah, would not, uh, he would see right through their, their vain attempt to get away with swearing by something that rivals his glory. Because nothing rivals his glory. And he takes that very seriously. John Calvin, that mental lightweight, I have to share this with you, this, this sentence that I, I looked at for longer than I should have uh, this past week. This is his quote. But while men seek to be ingenious in dissembling with God, they delude themselves with the most frivolous evasions. And what he's saying is the Jews thought themselves to be disguising their true motives by swearing by heaven and they were arrogant enough and felt learned enough, learned enough, that he wouldn't even know. And then Calvin goes on to explain that James, like Jesus, uh, commands to abstain from swearing. Calvin writes this easier to understand. For whoever swears in vain and on frivolous occasions profanes God's name, whatever form he may give to his words. The reason is mentioned by Christ because the glory of God is everywhere inscribed and everywhere shines forth. So when men swear by anything, they may as well have named God himself. For by thus speaking, they actually designate the worker by his works. So the reason that the verse says above all is because profaning the name of God is no lightweight matter. It's very, very important. And even in the in the text itself, it says there will be condemnation for those who profane God and his glory. You know, in our, our modern vernacular, he, he's just teaching that we shouldn't be flippant with the words we use. Those of you that know me know that, as usual, I got pounded by the Holy Spirit this entire week because I am indeed so flippant with my words. But you know what's even more uh, dangerous, and I do this, I prop up what I'm saying with something. You know, I, I, I promise I'll, I'll be there in like 15 minutes. I, I guarantee you, I, you know, yesterday I was, I told you I'd be there at such and such a time, and I was, but I guarantee today, I'm always propping it up in some way. And that's what this is primarily uh, teaching against. If we're so consistently honest and trustworthy that our friends and our family and our neighbors can take it to the bank. It'll, it'll enable us to just let our yes be yes and our no be no if we're that trustworthy. Some of you who are over 40 years old, uh, 
remember Bonanza, maybe this series, a Western, and Ben Cartwright was the patriarch of the family. And Ben Cartwright was just the picture of integrity and honesty. He was so constantly and continually honest that even the bad guys trusted that he was honest. They trusted everything that he said. And that's how we need to be. And I was, I was speaking with Mark Jumpers, one of our members, uh, and I were, were having dinner this past week. And Mark pointed out that God is the God of truth and God is truth. The, the veracity of what God tells us in his word, his truthfulness is a part of who he is. And you and I are in his image. We're made in his image. So we too are to be truthful. So first we talked about weighing our words. So second, we're going to get into the pray for ourselves and ask others to pray for you. We're going to talk for the next few minutes about praying for ourselves and asking others to pray for us. So look at James 5, 13 and 14. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Some of you may be surprised to know that just a couple of weeks ago, we received a call uh, from members here, a husband and wife, wanting the elders to come to their home and pray over the wife who was sick to anoint her with oil. And it was such a blessed time. The elders uh, were, were, we were blessed. The family was blessed. And I can say with confidence that even God was blessed. And the reason I know that is because all through the Old Testament and the New Testament, he says, he, he commands that we pray for each other, that we cry out to him in our weakness and our desperation. And we pray to each other. There's many, many passages of scripture that call us to daily pray for ourselves and for others and to at least regularly, listen, to at least regularly call others, ask others to pray for us. I say at least daily because 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 17 says rejoice always and pray without ceasing. I, I get many calls every week uh, from people asking, uh, asking me to pray for them. Just this week actually, Dean and I were uh, sitting together on our couch in the living room. 10.30 at night, friends called us and asked us if we would please Pray for them, and we did uh, over the phone, and then we've been praying for them since then. And I, I started to not tell you about this, and I thought, you know, I bet if I tell them that, they're going to think either, wow, pastors get called at all hours of the night, you know, 1030 at night, wow. You know, I, I wouldn't do that. Or, you know, why, why wouldn't they call at a more, more appropriate time, 1030 at night? You know, couldn't it wait uh, till in the morning. Well, first of all, 10.30 at night is not late at all uh, for my family. So that was 
not a big deal. But you know, this is what I want you to think about. When's the last time you called somebody at 1030 at night and asked them to pray for you about something? When's the last time you called somebody at any time of day and asked them to pray for you about something? If you're thinking, don't want to bother them, uh, you know. These people were hurting at 1030 at night. And you know what I would say bluntly is no, they should not have waited till in the morning. Because they felt a way that God loves us to feel. They were humble, they were full of humility, and they were desperate. And he loves when we cry out to him in our humility and desperation. You might be thinking, you know, I'm just, I'm just a little bit too bashful to ask others to pray for me, but I would encourage you to, to think the same thing I think every morning when I wake up. I'm just a little bit too, I, Tim Dryden, I'm a little bit too sinful or prideful or lazy or arrogant. And the Bible clearly teaches if we are too lazy and arrogant and prideful to ask someone, us, someone else to pray for us, then we're not likely to receive whatever it is we're longing for. Before moving on, just one more, I just want one more little uh, tidbit that I noticed, for, you know, 13, 14, good. Notice how he mentions prayer and then, no, go back, Wade. Yeah, how he mentions prayer and then he talks about cheerful and singing praises and then he, he talks about prayer again. So there's prayer and singing praises and rejoicing and prayer again. And when we read that about the woman a while ago, she was singing praises and she was praying. And they did that at least once a week. That family would go out and sing praises to the Lord. Her kids were used to that. But there was praise and there was prayer. In the, in the quote that I almost forgot to, to mention a minute ago in 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, 16 and 17, it says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. So prayer and praise go beautifully together. And the Bible is replete with examples that show that prayer and praise move our great God. In Acts 16, we read where these two missionaries had been beaten with rods and thrown in jail. And their response was a little bit different than my response would have been in the same situation it says here in verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them and suddenly there was an earthquake. We're in a Presbyterian church and you know that I know that God could have caused that earthquake without them singing and praying, couldn't he? But the Bible says that they were praying and praising God at midnight instead of thinking we're out doing God's work and look what happened to us. Why is this happening to us? Why isn't this happening to the, somebody else that pagan idol worshipers? But instead of doing that, 
They were praising God in these unthinkably miserable conditions they were in. And God chose that to cause the earthquake. You can read more about that later in Acts 16. So we talked about weighing our words. We talked about we need to pray for ourselves daily and ask others to pray for us. We need to pray for others. Third and finally, amazing things happen when believers pray. I could spend a long time, those of you that know me, I personally have seen amazing things happen when people pray. Things that cannot be chalked up to happenstance or coincidence or luck. Cannot. The Bible says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Believers all through the Bible got supernatural answers to their prayers. Believers throughout redemptive history, believers even right up till today in this sanctuary have seen amazing answers to prayer. It says right there, the prayer of faith saves, heals, forgives. It says the prayer of a righteous person has great power. Now, for those of you that are getting a little nervous, I'm about to say what you're hoping I'll say, and that is we must always keep in mind that it's not our human words that proceed from our mouths that heal anybody or save anybody or forgive anybody. It's God choosing to work through that. But the amazing thing, the good news of the gospel is that our infinitely powerful God has chosen, he has decided that he wants to execute his sovereign will at least partially through the prayers of his weak, sinful children. We're, we're likened to shrivel leaves in the Bible, to moths, to mist, to a lot of other not so cool things. But our powerful God, our infinite and eternal and unchangeable in his being and wisdom, power and glory and justice and goodness and truth. As the catechism says, he created everything all by himself. We're so weak, human can't jump 10 feet off the ground. We can't go 10 minutes without oxygen. Most of us won't live a century. God has been, has existed from all eternity and has created everything, as Kurt mentioned earlier, or somebody did, from nothing, from the word of his power. And yet he gives us the blessing and the responsibility to come to him and pray. What a fantastic, what an immense blessing. Are you kidding me? That God works through people that he knows are sinful. And we weren't sinful until we got saved and now we're not sinful. We're sinful today. We're sinful sitting in the pews. We're continuing to, to be sanctified and working through our foulness and our rebellion. And yet, 
Our loving Heavenly Father uses us. How amazing is that? James 5.17 says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it didn't rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. If you know anything about Elijah, you know that he was not your average Joe. More jaw-dropping things, more events. God did more events through him, possibly, than anybody else in the Bible other than Jesus himself. Yet, and James knew, the people reading this letter knew that about him. They knew all about Elijah. And James is saying, hey, he gets up, puts on one leg at a time of his pants every day just like you do. He has a nature just like yours. He's a human, in other words. He has nothing divine in him. He's a human being. And he prayed fervently, and God answered his prayers. And he's calling us to directly pray to him, and he'll directly answer our prayers. The last two verses seem almost like stream of consciousness uh, than, than thoughtfully tied to the, to the pericope we've been studying. But really, when, once you look at it, it, it has everything to do with it. He says in James 5, 19, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You know what he's stressing here? He's ending this last thing before he says, Love James. He's emphasizing the corporate responsibility we Christians have with one another, toward one another. We're the family of God. The reason James, all through the letter, he, brothers, my brothers, he would say something to encourage them, my brothers, and then he would nail them, my brothers. He kept saying my brothers because he's so conscious of the fact that they are family. And we Christians are family. Many times we don't act like that, but we are family. I'm not going to go back to it, but we can't ignore James 5, 16 uh, that we read earlier. We're to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. It's in the Bible. It says we're to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another. It's not saying we have to tell every little minutiae sin that we've committed to somebody else. It's not saying that. It's saying be vulnerable. God knows you're a sinner. Whoever you live with knows you're a sinner. We're sinners. We need to be vulnerable. For us to think that we can navigate our way through this broken world alone because we're so strong is sin in and of itself. And it's only as we're purposeful about being in community with each other that we'll even know what's going on with each other to be able to do the one another's of Scripture, to love others, serve one another, bless one another, bear one another's burdens. How are you going to do that sitting in that pew right now? It's, it, it can be done a little bit. It can be done a little bit on campus at Sunday school following this. But God calls us to be in community with one another. It's not my, it is a big passion of mine, but it's, it's not a human thing. It's a God thing. 
I've had brothers and sisters where I used to live and here come to me and lovingly, like with a velvet hammer, call me out. They knew I was, I was wandering from the truth. And you know what they were really doing? They were lavishing love on me. The way God calls us to lavish love on others. Listen, as hard as that is, he calls us to do it. He calls us to love each other in that way. I'll just, I'll close with this. Uh, I've said this before. I think about it a lot. Six times, you can look it up. Six times just before Jesus was crucified, he was talking to his disciples and he said, pray. He said, ask, ask, ask. If you abide in me, ask. Six times he said, pray, pray. One time he said, until now you've asked nothing in my name, but ask and receive. Somehow I left out the passage a while ago um, where Jesus said himself in the Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew 7. And he said, ask and seek. And it's the askers and the seekers who are the finders and the receivers in the kingdom of heaven. Like the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, it was a hassle. It was probably embarrassing. It probably felt pretty desperate and hopeless. But she walked through this crowd and reached out and just touched Jesus' robe, and he said he felt power go out from him. Think about that. He was getting jostled around like leaving a pro football game when you're just walking like this, all these people walking, people touching him all the time. But he felt power go out from him when the woman touched him. God calls us to ask. Let's ask him now. Lord, we, we ask you, Lord, to give us the grace to believe this scripture and to put it to practice in our lives. Lord, thank you so much for loving us so much that you came and you died for us. Even while we were still sinners, you demonstrated that love to us. Lord, help us to cry out to you to enable us to be bold in our love for others and our love for you. In the powerful name of Jesus, I pray, amen.